we're going to do a deep dive into being in a safe and social state. Welcome to episode two of the Polyvagal Podcast. So I was uh, super nervous about the last episode. It was the first time uh, doing it, and I definitely had a huge dose of imposter syndrome. Um, In my mind, this is not based on reality, but in my mind, Dr. Porges and Deb Dana and Peter Levine, my my trinity, my polyvagal trinity, they were going to listen, and they they were going to know that I was not cut out for this. In my mind, that was what was happening. This isn't based on reality, but that's where... That's where I was. I was uh, extremely nervous about it. Um, I decided this time to relax. I have a show structure now. That should help me out a lot. Um, but I thought it went okay. I thought it went okay. And I got, um, I thought it went okay. And, but I was still nervous about it for quite a while. And luckily on Twitter, I was rescued. I got some kind words from someone from Allie Cliff. It's Cliff with two F's underscore Allie, A-L-I. Um, she left this wonderful comment and said, uh, or I guess on her own Twitter feed, and said, highly recommend listening to this podcast on polyvagal theory and its relevance to therapy in classrooms. Uh, Justin not only discusses the concepts, but actually relates to the listener in a way that is deeply respectful of states of safety. So that was awesome. Like I got, I read that, and this, this wave of reassurance came over me and it was wonderful. So thank, so thank you for that. Um, Ali, I appreciated that like so much. It instantly just helped me feel like, Oh, okay, cool. This, this is okay. I can do this. So thank you for that. Um, quick recap from the last episode, our bodies, <clears throat> excuse me, our bodies respond to, Oh, by the way, I'm doing this in one take. The last one, I did it three times for various reasons. Cause I was so I'm just a little bit nervous about it. Um, but I, I realized that I had done it based off a presentation that I had made in like like in real life to a bunch of teachers and uh, some therapists. So I was using that, and I didn't think about it as a podcast, which it is. So this time I've got the whole podcast thing more in mind, and I'm not just recording my voice doing the presentation. So anyhow, quick recap of last episode. Um, I highly recommend you listen to it. But our bodies respond to various levels of threat and safety. We have the safe and social mode or state. We have um, danger state, which is flight and fight in that order. And then we have uh, freeze mode, which is shutdown, collapse, um, dissociation, that kind of stuff. And we're going to go into every single one of these. Today, it's just safe and social mode. Um, That's what we're going to go into. So just like last time, if this, I think, I think that this is pretty safe. Um, I, I feel comfortable presenting this stuff, talking to you about it. I don't think it's triggering, but if you know that that you are easily triggered uh, by even the topic of trauma, I recommend you know listen to this in doses, slow down, take a walk, drink some water, don't listen to it while you're driving. Um, please put yourself first, please, please, please. But I, I really think it's safe. I, I made sure there's there's no shock value in here at all. But you know it is trauma, so I want I want to be very sensitive to that. So that was the quick re- recap. Um, let's talk about safe and social mode. This is the uh, one of the parasympathetic branches. Um, safe and social mode. This connects. This is from uh, your heart 
to your brain, to your face. This is literally a heart to face to brain connection. Um, they, they go together. So the state of your heart is literally shown on your face. If, if your heart picks up, like in sympathetic mode, if it drops down the ladder even further, you're no longer going to utilize facial regulation or facial um, expressions as widely or as, as efficiently as you could in safe and social mode. So in safe and social mode, your face, the, the what it shows is, is showing that your heart is in a calm, peaceful, relaxing state. Okay? Uh, it's So it's parasympathetic. Um, it's the newest autonomic system. Uh, it's the social regulation system. This is unique to mammals. We can connect with each other socially and even across species. We can connect with, uh, I have a couple of dogs and they need constant connection. <laughs> One of them is a rescue and um, good. Like it's, it just seems like she never has enough. Um, but she'll look up in my eyes. She'll lay on my lap. Across species, we can connect with other mammals. Um, we needed, I think for evolution's sake, we needed to be social for being closer to each other. Um, not just us as human beings, but mammals. Because mammals, uh, we, we developed families. Uh, we used breastfeeding. Uh, we were... It was a way to calm each other, to protect each other, to be close to each other, to stay in families, to stay in tribes, um, or stay in little herds and groups. And this is pretty much true for, I think, I'm trying to think, like across mammalian, like all mammal species, um, a lot of this is true, that touch can be calming. So think about like, if you pet a fish, I don't think it's going to calm it down. Um, it'll probably run away or swim away. No, they don't run. They swim. Um, but it just, it, touching a fish is a trigger for danger, so they take off. But if you pet a dog, they're pretty much okay with that. Or rubbing a baby's back. So touch and being close and being safe and social, um, using our voice, using our eyesight, all of these things go together, and we'll talk more about each of them as we go down um, the list here. But that, that's, that's just to start off. This is a, it's a mammalian thing. Fish don't do this. Reptiles don't use a face to heart connection. Reptiles aren't bonding. I don't think, I don't think they, they're kind of just on their own, aren't they? I'm not a reptile expert, but I believe they just kind of do their own thing. They don't hang out in families or in herds. They're just solo and they, um, they don't have this regulation system of, of bonding of co-regulation. They basically they're in flight and fight mode or shutdown mode. And that's pretty much it. I think. So health and safety, um, this is the safe and social state means that the body can facilitate health, growth, and restoration, as Dr. Porta says. Instead of using its resources for flight and fight, it can use it for health and growth and restoration. So when we're safe and social, this optimizes our body's use of its own resources. We don't have to use the body's resources for running away or for fighting or for shutting down. Um, all of these other states, the running away, fighting, shutting down, these other states are extremely costly to our resources, including oxygen. And mammals need a lot of oxygen. So if we go into those modes, if we drop down the ladder into those modes, we are no, we're not we're not using our resources for health and growth and restoration. You probably know about um, the ACEs study. This is the adverse childhood experiences, I believe it's called. And I'll, I'll probably I should do an in-depth episode of ACEs in the future. But basically, it's a study done by Kaiser and the CDC. 
Um, from their website, it says it's, it's one of the largest investigations of childhood abuse and neglect and later life health and well-being. And they discovered that not only do trauma survivors have higher rates of behavioral problems, but also somatic issues like body issues. So they have is- more issues with social, emotional, and behavior problems, yeah. They have a shorter lifespan, uh, increased risk for suicidality. But in their body, there's a higher rate of diabetes, heart disease, lung cancer, fibromyalgia, autoimmune disease. I mean, all, all kinds of stuff that you would think, well, why would it affect, why would trauma affect the body? Um, but it does. And the reason for that seems to be that the body is no longer using its resources for health and growth and restoration. It is diverting. It's taking those resources that it needs for those things and it's diverting them toward a path of danger, like always being in danger mode and not using those resources for being in a healthy um, state. When you're in safety mode, um, your health, your, I'm sorry, your saliva and digestion are stimulated. Um, think about people, and this is, I, this happened to me. Your mouth may dry up when you're giving public speeches because the speaker doesn't feel safe anymore. And this totally happened to me. Think, but you know, think about when you were a kid in class, or when you presented in college. If you had to t- talk in front of the class, um, your mouth goes dry. Because you, you don't feel safe anymore. And the body's basically saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we don't need this. We don't need our mouth to be wet anymore. We're not, <laughs> we're not chewing on anything. We're not eating anything. We need to divert all, all energy, all resources, whatever we can into our legs so we can run as fast as we can. Um, we have to pump blood faster. So everything's going to go to the heart. And we might have to fight people off or things off. I don't know. But basically, we, we don't need to digest when we're in flight and fight mode like we would if we're in safety mode. We need those resources for survival. So your mouth goes dry if, if, if you're in danger mode. So in safety mode, your mouth is saliva and digestion are stimulated. I remember when I, when I first did this presentation in front of um, about 40, about 40 teachers, now 35 teachers and a handful of therapists. My, my mouth went way dry really quick. Um, it was actually quite shocking. <laughs> It was actually quite shocking, uh, but I drank some water. I recognized it, and it was actually part of my presentation, so I knew, oh, yeah, this is what's happening right now. And uh, I drank some water, and I was fine. Also, our heart rate slows down. This means that we can sit still and engage socially. When our heart rate picks up, we, don't, we can't sit still. That's very hard to do. So when our heart rate is slower, calmer, we can sit still, we can engage socially. How many students in the classroom have a heart rate, if you're a teacher, have a heart rate that is at a nice, healthy baseline to where they can sit down and learn. Hopefully most of them. But I'm sure if you're a teacher, you right away you're thinking of that kid that's not in that state. His heart rate or her heart rate is picked up. It's uh, it's going faster than usual. Um, and it's extremely hard for them to just sit still and to listen. All of those things require that you're in a safe and social state. How about you, when you're a listener, dear listener, when you're at work, how's your heart rate? Maybe you haven't stopped to notice it, but um, how's your heart rate doing right now? And also with the with safety, we're able to take full breaths. Full breaths mean it indicates being in a safe state. Short and narrow breaths indicate being in a danger mode, in a dangerous state of flight or fight. Um, how's your breathing right now? Is it pressured? Does it feel shallow? Are you able to comfortably breathe into your belly? That, that's for me that really shows that someone's in a safe state is when they can breathe into their belly in therapy with the kids that are 
or adults that are more on, I would do most of my work with kids, uh, teenagers, when they're more on the um, uh, anxious side, if they're more in danger mode, they don't breathe into their belly. They breathe into their chest and into their shoulders, um, very shallow. And when I ask them to take a deep breath, they will breathe not into their belly. It breathes into their chest and they basically like grab the seat like with their, you know, like on a roller coaster. You know, if you go on a roller coaster and you're like you're grabbing that bar in front of you. So with some people who are way more on the danger side, when they take a deep breath, it's like they brace for it. Um, it's not a comfortable, slow process. It's um, more of a shock, it seems like. Um, or they're, they're fighting that pressure that they feel on their chest, I think. For my fellow therapists, are you breathing comfortably in session? Um, how about when your client start talk, starts to talk about some details of trauma? What, how, how does your breathing change? Teachers, how about you? Are you breathing comfortably? How about uh, when that one kid is starting his or her spiral into their meltdown? Like you can see it's happening. You know it's coming. Does your breathing change? It probably goes a little bit more shallow because you know it's coming. You're dreading it. You know, and part of you might not want to deal with it. And a big part of you is thinking about the rest of the class and how do I make sure that they're still learning? How do I keep people safe? So when we go into these modes where we're recognizing this, our breathing changes. Feeling safe is crucial in mammals. It, Like I said, it facilitates general health. Um, you know, uh, equilibrium of like body functions, hormone release, all that. We need that to, we need to be in a safe state to, to do these things at a, a healthy baseline. But also with cognitive functions like learning and productivity, critical thinking, problem solving, these don't happen outside of a safe and social mode. So kids in school, adults in school, or being at work, you're not going to be able to use the cognitive skills to the best of your ability unless you feel safe and social. Problem solving becomes a lot more difficult because if you're not, if you don't feel safe, identifying a problem becomes more difficult because everything feels like a problem. Coming up with solutions is a lot more challenging because things may feel like um, like I'm in danger. There's no solution to that. Uh, so identifying the problem is difficult, and then coming up with solutions is obviously going to be difficult if you can't identify the problem. You might be more like in blame mode or avoiding the problem or denying there is a problem in these states. So problem solving becomes a lot more difficult. When we're safe, we can identify the problem, we can problem solve, and we can collaborate with other people because we're able to be social. We can collaborate, we can brainstorm, we can um, admit, like, that's, yeah, that was a dumb idea, and I like, I like yours more, and it won't, we won't take it personally. The other thing with safety is we can socially engage. We can do mutual play, and I'll talk about play in a future episode. I think play is very interesting. We can, we can play mutually. We can make and sustain soft, gentle eye contact. We can do safe touch. So with social engagement, we need to perceive safety, to engage in safety. It's not really about is the environment actually safe. Of course that's important. But it's are we in a, in a safe state to recognize and engage with a safe environment and to play mutually? This reminds me of when I was a kid. My brother, I had two, I have two brothers. I'm the middle child. Um, and we would play uh, like baseball or football or you know whatever sport against uh, a couple of boys in the neighborhood who were also brothers and lived two houses down. So my brother and I, my older brother and I, just dominated. We were unbeatable, unbeatable. Like we were just, whatever game we played against them, we dominated. And they were extremely sore, sore losers. They were not in a safe and social state after we dominated them. 
Um, they, they were very sore losers. There's one time where they lost, and one of them dumped Seven Up on Seven Up the soda on my bedroom window. After like they went home, got a Seven Up can, went outside my window and dumped Seven Up on my bedroom window. And there was another time where that that's so that's not safe and social. They were not able to play mutually. It was all about winning for them. I know I know I'm talking about dominating, but um, it, it wasn't. If I had lost, I would have been okay with it. But for them, losing was not something they could tolerate. Um, glow, I mean, there's one time where they did win, but it was like, it was like at nighttime. It was dark out. The streetlights were on, which is something I don't think kids do anymore. But uh, we were playing baseball with a tennis ball and a wiffle ball bat. Great, I love, great memories. And they won because it was dark. They got a hit, and I, I couldn't see it, and uh, they, they won, right? And they gloated about that heavily, heavily. So they weren't able to tolerate a loss. They were not able to tolerate a win because they were not in a safe and social state. They just wanted it was about competition and being better. Nothing wrong with that. If you can tolerate it, they weren't in that space. Um, they, so they weren't able to stay in that safe and social state, even if they were there. Think about you know students that have a hard time losing or students that have a hard time transitioning from lunchtime breaks. Um, they may not be in a place where they can mutually play with their peers. Or how about, you know, think about uh, making eye contact and holding eye contact safely. This you, you, this doesn't happen outside of being in a safe and social state. Um, have you ever had a hard time making eye contact? I, this is something I, I have. I still kind of have. But I had a huge issue with this up until I became really aware of it after learning about polyvagal theory. And I realized how often I don't look at people in the eye. How about you? Have you... Do you have a hard time making eye contact? Maybe maybe it's with a certain person or with everyone. For me, it was kind of like general. I just didn't like making eye contact with people. Um, I go out of my, my way now to do so and really force myself to do so. But you can literally feel your eyes. Like if you don't make eye contact or you don't feel safe, if, you're not, if your body's not in a state where it feels safe to make eye contact, you can literally feel your eyes being pulled down. Like you don't want it to happen. You're not, like, you're not exactly like you're choosing to, your body's just doing it. Like it's pulling your eyes down. Uh, at least that was my experience of it. Where, when I was not in a safe and social state or where I wanted to just avoid people or whatever. That my eyes just like pulled down. And I, and I was aware of it. I don't, I don't want to do that. It just, it just happened. Because I was in that moment, I was not in a safe and social state. It doesn't mean I was running away or fighting people. It just means I was down the ladder enough to where I was not accessing the safe and social state behaviors such as making safe, gentle eye contact. Because your body is just, if, if, that, if that's an issue for you, your body just perceives that you are not safe. And people who have survived or are surviving trauma, this is commonly an issue. Making eye contact, sustaining eye contact, um, especially people who are way down the ladder, like in shutdown mode, it just doesn't happen. And uh, eye contact can be a very intimidating, very scary thing. When we're in safety mode, we efficiently detect safety cues in the state of being safe and social. We we can catch red flags. So if someone says something weird or like out of place or they're acting a bit off or if, you know, they might have a hidden agenda and we're, we're, we're picking up on something, like we're, our, our red flags are up. But it's not... Um, indiscriminate in, in danger mode our red flags kind of go up 
about everything. But in safety mode, we can kind of detect, eh, something's a little bit off here. Let me listen to that. And it's something that we feel in our body. Um, it might be like a twinge in your gut. It might be something you feel in your chest usually. Uh, but we can stay in a safe state while we while we pick up on those red flags. We can notice it and just stay in a safe state. That's where we want to be. We don't get pulled down into like danger mode or shutdown mode. Teachers might recognize um, like a change in their students, like a red flag might come up and be like, hey, there's something, there's something different here. Um, therapists might be picking up on things. Uh, for me, female clients um, that have survived trauma I work with frequently uh, do not pick up on danger cues. Um, it, this commonly pops up when it, you know, in future relationships with, um, yeah, as they, as they enter into future relationships that they're not picking up on, on danger cues on red flags. They're not efficiently picking up on it. This is so common. Um, so I make a habit in session of, of pointing out red flags while we're talking. Um, and I'll ask them if, if they notice it and they'll be like, no. And I'll point out, well, this is the situation. This is what I'm hearing. You know, do you, this is kind of, to me, this is a red flag. And, you know, can you see that? And if you point it out and discuss it and t- talk about safety there, they can be like, oh yeah. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll, I will very regularly kind of point things out as I think it's helpful, but sometimes I'll, I'll do like a hand motion. Like I'll put my hand up and wave it and say, this is a red flag here. And I'll, I'm not like doing it in like an aggressive way at all. It's just more like, like, Hey, th- this is one of those things. And I'll, sometimes I'll even bring some humor to it and make like a noise, like bing. <laughs> and I'll raise my hand like a flag, like, like I'm waving a flag. Like this is one of those times where I'm hearing something that I don't think you're picking up on. So we're not... We're able to detect safety cues when we're in safe and social mode. And we are also able to instantaneously socially engage with others. We don't exactly choose to. We just sort of do it. We just sort of engage with other people when we're in safe and social mode. This includes uh, having closer proximity to someone who is safe, um, making eye contact and holding it in a gentle and safe way, uh, using more facial expressions, uh, especially... Um, everything ab- above the nose, like above the um, cheekbones, I guess, like the eye, the, the eyes and the forehead, eyebrows, all that is very important in conveying emotion. And when we're safe and social, we can use those uh, efficiently and in, in a greater range. Um, our physical gestures and posture are more relaxed, um, not as aggressive. We can hear human voice and tune out other noises. And um, we can also use our voice in a more prosodic way. I'll talk about what that is. But uh, let me go back a couple steps here. So engagement with other people is not really a choice. We just sort of do it. We we can, of course, choose to not engage with people. But when we're in safe and social mode around other people who are safe and social, we sort of instantaneously instantaneously sort of just connect to them and with them. Likewise, we naturally disengage with others that are not safe. So here's an example, right? Would you approach someone in a mask who's alone in an alley? No, of course not. That's obviously dangerous, right? But how about um, someone who has a flat affect? Someone who's not utilizing their facial muscles to show the state that they're in. You see their face, but it's emotionless. Their voice is flat. They're not keeping a soft eye contact. In this situation, you might feel a slight something, even right now, like as you listen to this and you picture this person, you might feel something right now. You might feel like an icky feeling or a concern or something in your chest or even your belly. Um, it's different for everybody. But imagining this person who's emotionless, flat face, 
flat voice. They're not keeping a soft eye contact. This is a red flag. Um, you might still engage with them if you're in a safe public place, but your alarms will probably stop you from spending alone time with them. You might back off and give them some more space. You might cut the conversation off kind of quick. This person's social engagement system may be offline, which our bodies will read as danger. In fact, I know if, if they have a flat affect, that means that their heart is no longer beating at a calm pace, that they are in some sort of danger mode. That's the cues that they're giving, at least. If their face has gone flat, um, that means they're alert to danger. Uh, but this is, if, if you backed off or shut it off or were not alone with them, this is healthy neuroception. Detecting danger when it's there and detecting safety when it's there. This is healthy neuroception like we learned about last time. Survivors of trauma often have difficulty with this. Um, identifying and giving safety cues. And I will get into um, why when we talk about danger mode and shutdown mode. Or we'll talk about those different states, flight, fight, and uh, freeze. I'll talk about that then, uh, which should make a lot more sense. Uh, but eye contact, that's a huge one. This is a very big deal. Survivors of trauma have a very difficult time or can have a very difficult time making eye contact and also interpreting eye contact when they, when they receive it. Um, the teens I've worked with in particular, and this is no matter the demographic, no matter what gender, um, hugely triggered by someone looking at them. I consistently, I mean predictably, hear about someone being looked at the wrong way, which can start a spiral down the polyvagal ladder. So those blank stares are a huge deal to someone who's not in safety mode. That's more of a flight, fight, flight and fight. Um, how about as a parent? Do you use the look? You heard, I'm sure you've heard of that or received it when you were a kid. So many of the parents I've worked with say that they got the look and it straightened them out. But what's happening is we're actually sending our kids down the ladder into danger mode and out of safe and social mode. When we get those looks where our face goes blank and our eyes are wide, when we get that look, that's a cue of danger. So this mode isn't pleasant. This look isn't pleasant. This mode of being in uh, danger mode is obviously not pleasant. So when kids get the look, they will either correct their behavior to avoid it and to avoid the state that they're in or have worse behavior if they don't have the resiliency to tolerate the state shift of going into danger mode. Uh, hearing a human voice is dependent upon being in a safe state. If you're not in a safe state, you actually don't detect, you don't hear human voice as well as you could. Um, for me, after I did this presentation the first time, I was absolutely, like I, the whole time I did the presentation, I was pretty much in like danger mode. I mean, I wasn't in danger, but my body picked it up. Um, pretty anxious, uh, talking a mile a minute, taking short breaths, uh, pretty much just like pumped up, motivated in a good way. But my basically my body was, everything was like in danger mode. And I was no longer hearing human voice. Um, like when I left, I mean, I was, but when I left work and I picked up my daughter from school, she was in the back seat talking to me and I knew she was talking to me and I was aware of that, but I was like, I don't hear her. I know she's talking. I can kind of hear her, but I can't make out what she's saying. Because I was attuned, my ears were attuned to danger. Um, even though I was safe, the perception of my body was danger from, from doing the, speak, the public speaking. So I literally, I knew she was talking, but I couldn't hear it. And I was, I was fascinated because <laughs> I had just talked about this to a group of people. And I was like, this is happening. This is it right now. I'm in danger mode. And I can't, I have no idea what she's saying. It was probably about, about Minecraft. Uh, hearing, so hearing human voices dependent upon being in a safe state. In this state, the middle ear muscles are 
tuned to picking up human voice. This is a product of evolution. This is a product of evolution that when when things weren't safe, our ear muscles tuned to um, deep growling noises or, I don't know, deep sounds like an avalanche or an earthquake or to high-pitched noises of like another mammal screaming for its life so that we could either go help them or probably more likely to run away from that situation and save ourselves. So hearing human voices dependent on being in a safe state or to hear, to hear human voices efficiently to be able to, to detect um, and understand things like sarcasm, we have to be in a safe state. Like, I think it's amazing. Our ears are amazing. They can actually tune out like loud music noises and attune to human voice. If you've ever gone to a club, which I haven't, I have no idea about that. But uh, if you go to the club, as uh, people do, um, you can actually, what I hear is tune pretty much tune out music in a way and really pick up on human voice. Even though there's tons of noise, you can actually pick up, you can, your ears will attune to human voice. Uh, we tune out we tune out noises that aren't necessary when we're in a safe mode. We're listening to other human beings and to probably, I would say, other mammals as well. But we're, we're open to that. Our, our ears are now attuned to other safe sounds. Of course, we can when we do hear danger sounds, we pick up on them efficiently. And then our body shifts down the ladder to, to, to kind of hone in on that. But um, we're also using something called prosody. I mentioned that. We're using something called prosody. Um, our voices won't be flat, and we use a fuller range of voice. Uh, I actually have an example here for you. This is from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Adams here. Adam Lee here. Adamowski. Adamson here. Adler here. Anderson. Anderson here. Bueller. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. Fry. So who is using prosody in this example? Um, don't report me to whoever made this movie, by the way. <laughs> I use this without their permission. Uh-oh. Who, who's using prosody? Simone is the girl that answers the question and, and uh, about where Fer- Fer- yeah, Bueller, where Ferris Bueller is. She's using prosody. She's talking a very sing-songy, maybe a little bit too much, honestly, but she's a, a very sing-songy kind of way. She's in a safe and social state. She's able to fluctuate her voice and express herself um, in any way she wants, basically, with her voice. Who is not in safe and social mode, is the teacher. He uses a, a monotone, deep voice, which is a, when we hear it, is actually a signal of danger. So teachers, if you have a deeper voice, just heads up. And most kids, it's a non-issue. They can tolerate it um, and stay in their safe and social state. But for survivors of trauma, hearing this teacher in this example is going to bring them down the ladder, and they may not be able to tolerate that for very long. So the, the teacher's not, he's uh, not in a safe and social state. By all, by all accounts, what he's showing us in this clip is not in a safe and social state. There's also another student in the back of the classroom, if you watch the clip. Um, I think his name was Adams. I'm not sure. But he's the one who yells, here! He yells. He yells the teacher. He's not in a safe and social mode. He's more like in a fight mode. In the video, he's quite annoyed. 
His eyebrows are down. He's not making eye contact. And he snaps his answer and he huffs. Um, he's not using full breaths. He's, he's talking very quickly in short bursts. He says, here. So teachers, are you using prosody? Therapists, are you using prosody? Uh, how about co- bosses and coworkers? Are you using prosody? Or are you more monotone and talk like this? Don't be fake. Clients and students and coworkers will know. I'm not asking you to do that. But just for now, be aware. Just how, how are you coming across to, to um, your students and clients and coworkers? Because when you use a fuller range of voice, it communicates safety. And people in their bodies will feel safer with you. When you talk in short bursts um, or have a more monotone voice, people will pick up on danger cues. The experience of safety is that the world is, and this is an ideal, right? The world is safe, fun, peaceful. You can soothe and be soothed. Um, You're calm, happy, meditative, engaged, attentive, active, interested, excited, joyful, relaxed. Um, The negative is interpreted as neutral or unimportant. A lot of this, by the way, is from Deb Dana, what I just read. Um, all this, by the way, is from a lot, you know, Dr. Porges, Deb Dana, Peter Levine. Um, anyhow, so the, the negative is interpreted when you're in safe and social mode. The negative is interpreted as neutral or as unimportant. So the kid, the kid in class that stares is is just weird instead of being a threat to you, or they have their own issues and it doesn't involve you. That's how you interpret it. If you're not in safe mode, um, now you interpret that kid that's staring you you interpret him as or her as a threat there's what why are they doing that like what what are they thinking about or what are they planning um or, or the boss that raises their voice is just having a bad day versus they think i'm incompetent or they don't like me or the person that cut me off on the road is just in a rush um this is by the way to the person in the bmw getting off on march lane from i5 i'm, I'm talking to you um, i know you didn't have it out for me even though you clearly went around me and almost knocked me off the road, even though we were both getting off on the off on the same exit, and I was going the speed limit, but yeah, that's okay. You were in a rush; it wasn't a personal thing. I'm all, I'm all right. Yet I still I do remember in that moment I definitely dropped down the ladder. But anyhow, uh, what's needed for safety? Um, ongoing opportunities for safe interactions with others, uh, not just at home, not just at school. And not just online, but all these things like ongoing interactions is needed for, I think, like an ongoing feeling of safety. And it's a, you can definitely feel unsafe at home, but safe at school. I know a lot of kids go to school because that's their safe place. Um, sadly, but also luckily, they have a place to go to. Or students, or not just students, but people, kids that go to grandma's house um, to escape an unsafe situation that they have a safe place to go to. But what we need to stay in a safe and social state is ongoing safe interactions, not just once, not just the one place, but ongoing, ideally. Reliable relationships. Also, this is what's needed for ongoing safety. Reliable relationships based on reciprocity. That means give and take. That means empathy. Many clients, many students do not have reliable relationships based on reciprocity. They are not going home and feeling understood or being validated, or being normalized, or being listened to, uh, or being, you know, they're not going home to a home that's not judgeful. Judgeful? I don't know. It doesn't seem like the right word, but... um, Or they're going home, they're feeling judged, they're feeling evaluated. 
these are all things that you get from therapy is to feel judged. <laughs> no, that's not right. When you go to therapy, you're supposed to feel understood, validated, normalized, listened to, not judged, and not really evaluated. So these are all, this is the, that's what you're supposed to get from therapy. But really, I want you to get these things from home. I want you to get these things from families and friends. Not from. I don't want you to have to go to a therapist for these things. But of course, some people do, and that's okay. Um, but you know, a lot of clients, a lot of students don't have places where they go to feel understood or validated or normalized. That's why they come to us, right? But you need, but we need these things. We need these things for safety, to feel safe and social. We need these things ongoing. We also need time spent with safe people doing shared activities like play and social work. And again, I'll go into play way more in another episode, a couple episodes or, or so. Um, but you know, if you if you work with teens and gangs, you know they are not going anywhere that's providing them with a sense of safety. They have no. They really. They're, they're not going. The gang is, in a way, the safety, because at least they have some protection, some backup, um, a perception of loyalty. It's not there, but a perception of loyalty, uh, a belonging. That's the best they can do. So if, if you work with these this population, you know they have nowhere to go that's safe. That is actually safe, except maybe school. But even these problems go with them to school too. Um, th- their homes, they're not nurturing. They're not supportive. They're not emotionally validating. Uh, they're not positive places. So many students are not going home to a safe uh, safe place. Um, I've worked in a school district, uh, a couple of them, and I see things in different ways now. Um, the kids, I noticed the kids that have, and this is this is super general and simplified, but I noticed the kids that have a safe place to go, they leave school, they seem to be happy, they go into a car, they go home. Of course, it's not perfect, I know. But generally, they seem like they have a place to go. And they're smiling. They're, they're, I see them socializing with their friends. They're connecting. They're laughing. They seem to be in a good state. They're going home, right? And hopefully, it's a safe enough environment. The, but there's, there's some kids that don't leave school right away. They just kind of hang around. They don't really have anywhere else to go. They're meandering. Their affect is a little bit fl- actually noticeably flatter. They're avoiding eye contact. They're not really doing anything positive. They're just kind of there. And I think it's because they don't really have a safe place to go where they feel safe. That's my assumption, anyhow. Um, the per- but the perception of safety is more important than the reality of safety. So the, again, I'll say this numerous times, the perception is more important than the reality. If, if your body doesn't feel safe, you're not going to be able, you're not going to be in a safe and social state even if you actually are in a safe place. So I'm going to wrap this up with um, talking about breath real quick. And there's just so many forms of breathing and um, grounding yourself through breathing. This is just one example. The point here is to purposely slow down and control, especially on the exhale. I want you to have a level of control in your body. I want you to do things like notice the way that your breath feels. I want you, so I want you, when you, when you breathe in, I want you to notice how it feels. How does your breath feel? Is it cold? Do you feel it in your nose? Do you feel it go into your lungs? Just to be more mindful, more aware of the moment and what, what's happening for you. Um, when you breathe in deeply, you can, you can, um, you can just breathe and notice it. It might help. It may help some people to breathe in deeply and imagine something like a certain color you're breathing in. I got this from a coworker. Breathe in a certain color, breathe out. Breathe in a certain color that you like. Breathe out a color you don't like. Um, or trace 
you know, imagine you're, you're going to make a square. Every time you breathe in and breathe out, it makes a line. So you can do this in like chunks of four, basically. You breathe in, nice deep breath in, in, in your belly, and you draw one line in your head of a square, breathe out, draw the other line, breathe in, draw the, uh, the third line, breathe out, draw the fourth line, and complete the square. So you can do that in chunks of four breaths, uh, do it a few times. But what, what the way I, I recommend my clients to breathe is to breathe in their, into their belly. And that's to breathe um, slowly in through the nose, to pause, and then slowly blow it out through the mouth. And, and to trust the next breath will come. Into the nose again, pause, and then out through the mouth. Um, don't blow it hard like you're blowing out birthday candles, but just sort of slowly push it out through the mouth. And then trust that your, your lungs will take in the next breath. And do that a few times. Um, go, you know, not as slow as you can, but sl- really slow it down. Slow it down. Um, I don't want you to, like, deprive yourself of oxygen, so don't go super slow. <laughs> um, but just, if you ha- if breathing is shallow for you, slow it down a little bit. Make sure it's going into your belly, not into your shoulders, not into your chest, but into your belly. And when we do this, it's going to help us come back up the ladder into a more safe and social state. Um, because if you're running away from a lion, you cannot breathe slowly. So if you can do so, even if you don't feel safe and social, if you can get your body to breathe like it's in a safe and social state, this will trick your brain into feeling like it's safe and social. So it's basically like a bottom-up intervention. You're going from your body to your brain rather than waiting for your brain to fix everything. You're going from your body to your brain and you're saying, I am safe. I'm in a safe place. And I, I can prove that by breathing slowly and being a little bit more in control of my breath and making sure it goes into my belly. And I'm also so safe that I can imagine drawing a square in my brain. And if I'm running away from a tiger, I'm not doing that. I'm not imagining colors. So this is a fun exercise. It can look many different ways, but you get the idea. And when you do this, ask yourself, and actually right now, does this help you to, does it help calm you and keep you in a safe place? Do you think this is helpful? Hopefully so. Uh, Remember though that if you're a therapist, that when you ask a client to do this, or if you're a student and you ask, I'm sorry, if you're a teacher and you ask a student to do this, this may not be safe for them. Asking them to be still is is a neuroception of danger potentially for people who have survived trauma. Being still may not be safe. Focusing inward may not be safe at all. So you got to be very aware of that. So it's not about making them breathe a certain way. It's not about making them close their eyes. Don't do that. They can if they want, but don't do that. It's you know. So it's just meet them where they're at. The best they can is fine. With my clients in therapy. Uh, Usually I can build rapport pretty quickly so I can get away with being a little bit more confrontational about breathing. And I'll point out, well, it looks like you're breathing into your chest and I'll, I'll imitate what they're doing, even including like grabbing the arm uh, on the chair like I'm on a roller coaster. And I'll, that way they see, oh, that's what I'm doing because they, they don't know because um, you have to have a certain level of body awareness. So this is what I'm seeing. And I'm going to challenge you. Let's, let's see if we can go into your belly, like really into your belly. And I show them, um, sometimes I'll put like something on my belly to rest it there, which sadly will sit there because I have a little bit of a belly. Um, and I'll show them, look, it's, it's coming up and it's going, every time I breathe in this, the pencil or whatever, do you see how it raises when it sits on my belly? It's because I'm, the breath is going into my belly. So teachers, I think, um, you need to do this with your students, model it with your students, um, and really show them into the belly. But if they can't do it, don't, it's not a big deal. It's fine. If they're in a room full of people that are 
breathing deeply and slowly and calmly, that's going to affect them. That's going to be a neuroception of safety, and it's going to help them go a little bit more up the ladder. So maybe the next day, they might be able to join you, or the next week, they might be able to join you and try it out. All right, so it's not about making people do it a certain way. It's about guiding, and even little baby steps is fine, or just at least, or at least being that, being that person who can breathe safe and socially. Because if you can do it and they pick it up, like their bodies, even if they're not aware of it, their bodies will pick up that you're breathing in a safe way. And that's going to be a neuroception of safety, okay? So thank you so much for listening. I hope this has brought you some value. Um, if you have a question about anything, I'd love to hear it and possibly address it in a future episode. Feel free to DM me on uh, Twitter. Email me, justinlmft at gmail.com. Thank you so much.